welcome to Honestly Cat, the podcast full of life lessons that empowers, educates and enlightens women everywhere. It's my mission to show you just how gorgeous you are and give you the tools to upgrade and transform all areas of your life. So let's get started. Welcome to my eight-week pop-up podcast to celebrate the launch of my debut book, Born to Shine, The Modern Woman's Guide to a Happier Life. Over the coming weeks, I'll be exploring and discussing many of the subjects that I cover in my sparkly and transformational book. This series, I'm talking to various women who are shining examples of ladies who are living their purpose and fulfilling their passion. It's about time we talked body positivity. This was a massive part of my journey. My body was largely the focus of my self-loathe. After birthing two kids, I couldn't shift the baby weight. After trying juicing, endless HIIT workouts, eating dust and the rest. It was only once I mastered self-love and celery juice that the weight finally shifted. The truth is for me, it was never about my body. It was something so much deeper and it was when my mindset shifted that everything else did. Society has a skewed view of how we should look and it's time we change this. Being you is your greatest power and I'm honoured to be speaking to the queen of the Bopo movement. Stay tuned as we give you everything you need to join the body positive movement and really get self-loving. Don't forget you can purchase my book on Amazon and at all major bookstores or simply just head to my website, catraincock.com. On this week's show, I'm talking to Michelle Elman, the mastermind behind the social media campaign Scarred Not Scared. The campaign was created following her 15 operations in 20 years and multiple near-death experiences that left her with not just physical scars, but emotional ones too. In 2015, she noticed there wasn't enough representation for people with scars, so she began sharing her experiences under the hashtag ScarredNotScared. And in July of that year, posted her first bikini picture online addressing the belief that people with scars can't wear bikinis, which went viral and the BOPO movement was well and truly thriving. Michelle is a leading body confidence coach and an award-winning body positive activist. Not just this, but she's also a TED Talk speaker with her topic, Have You Hated Your Body Enough Today? Last year, she launched her debut book, Am I Ugly?, written for people who want freedom from the unrealistic standards society sets because she recognises, as I do too, that all bodies are equally valuable. She is a force to be reckoned with. At the age of just 25, she is taking the world by storm with her honesty, charm and amazing ability to empower and share her message. I'm delighted to have Michelle on today's show. Welcome, welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me on. I can't believe it's been over a year since we were at Feminine Superpowers together. No, time flies by so quickly. It really does. And so tell me, for the audience who aren't familiar with you, although there are a lot out there that are, uh, it's been quite a journey um, for you. So if you could just give a little bit of background on your on your journey so far. Yeah, sure. So as we mentioned, I've had 15 surgeries um, from a brain tumour, a puncture intestine, obstructive bowel, a cyst in my brain, and a condition called hydrocephalus. And I basically grew up really insecure about my scars. And then the weight gain that came from um, 
those surgeries and following those surgeries. Um, I think every teenager has those insecurities, but I think the scars added an extra element where it was something where I felt like no one else could understand. And I'd always had this passion to become a psychologist. And so I got trained. Well, I was mid getting trained. I was in the middle of my university degree. Um, and in my final year, in my second year, I ended up going into hospital. And in my final year, I ended up having PTSD, which kind of massively shifted my perspective on therapy, um, being a client or a patient, as opposed to the, from the therapy side, I was always wanting to be the therapist. Um, and long story short, it didn't particularly work for me. And then I kind of had that career crisis where I was graduating and growing great. The one thing I wanted to be for the last 10 years, I'm not so sure anymore. Um, and that's how I discovered coaching. Um, so I got qualified in NLP, uh, which is Neuro Linguistic Programming for anyone who is listening, timeline therapy, NLP coaching, and hypnotherapy. Um, and then started life coaching. And it was within six months of life coaching that there's a saying within life coaching that you should never be a life coach because no one needs a life coach. You should choose a, um, a specialty or a niche. And so I was really looking to find the niche and I was really interested in confidence. And then it just occurred to me that I wasn't actually interested in confidence. I was only specifically interested in body confidence. Um, and that's when I started working in that area and all of my clients were kind of from that area. Um, and then one of my clients one day, I mentioned to her that I had these scars and these surgeries and she was like, why don't you talk about this? And I was like, where, where do you want me to talk about this in our sessions? I was like, about you. And he was, she was like, no, but it should be on your website. And I was like, but again, my website is for my clients. Like, why should it be about me? So I was still very like, oh, I don't understand how my story benefits anyone else. So decided to do it as a separate social media campaign and the social media side of it kind of got a, well, <laughs> had a bit of a moment going viral and then it grew and became this world of its own. Um, and now it's a very lovely part of my career and probably the bigger part of my career. Uh, do you know what I'm finding in in as I interview more and more women is that the and this is the same for myself that the as we look back on the toughest parts of our life they've actually fed and ended up being the greatest part of our life once we looked at that part if you know what I mean Definitely. I always think it's so hard when you get, you um, are asked these questions because everyone's like, what's that light bulb moment? And what people don't realize is these light bulb moments are only light bulb moments in hindsight. At that point, like the point where I got PTSD and suddenly the one thing I wanted to be for the last 10 years of my life doesn't exist anymore. It didn't feel like a light bulb moment. It didn't feel like, oh, this is the thing that's going to change my life in a good way. It felt yeah. like this is the moment I'm going to lose my life. And I just <laughs> like, what is my life without this goal? Because I guess as a way of trying to be okay with my surgeries, the one thing that had got me through all of it was I'm going to use this to help people. And I genuinely believed, and this sounds really narrow-minded, but that the only way to help people was to be a psychologist and not a coach and not a therapist or counsellor. I wanted to specifically be a psychologist. So I remember in one of my first sessions with someone who was trained in NLP, 
they he genuinely had to ask me the question isn't there some isn't there a way to help people that isn't being a psychologist and it was like this question was such a simple question I hadn't actually considered it until that mm. point and it's like these moments in hindsight you're like it was one simple question that kind of changed my mindset but at the time you're like you're in this like confusion state and you don't know what is going on with your life and that's what it actually feels like. It's only later, five years later, when you're being asked the question, like, what was the one moment that changed your life that you can put it into a succinct 10-minute answer? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for me, it was when my husband turned around and asked me, are you happy? And I was like, of course I'm happy. I'm just stressed. I've got kids. And he was like, I, mm, I, think, it's a, I think it's a little bit more than that. I would go and speak to somebody and he'd already um had some coaching and so I guess with him going first I kind of thought oh well if he's doing it I'll do it and there is a really big stigma about going to therapy psychologists even coaching to, to some extent have you found that there is a big stigma because I know that you wrote in your book and I love this line going to see a therapist meant admitting I wasn't normal yeah, and I think there was, I think it was two things. There was a negative culture in Hong Kong, which is where I grew up around therapy and mental health in general. And there, there was a negative environment around um, the school counsellor in my secondary school. Um, so the secondary, in my secondary school, it was very much the mentality of unless you had uh, depression, anorexia, bulimia, or um, there was one self-harm that like your problems weren't big enough to see the school counsellor and people mm. were very embarrassed to go see the school counsellor so there was a lot of joking around it um and I've just oh I get the book name confused with her real name <laughs> so I've got the book name of the school counsellor but um and I've just got the, her real name in my head but there was a lot of joking let's just call her Anne but <laughs> there was a lot of joking where like if someone started being like oh you'll be like if you got into a fight in the study um, and you were like yelling at each other, someone would be like, oh, why don't you go see Anne and cry about it? So it would be very much this like flippant, like, oh, you're being a crybaby um, attitude around it. So it was never like, oh, you could go see the school counsellor to just talk about your work stress or about friendship problems. It had to be very serious. And then in Hong Kong, it was kind of like, we just get on and move on to the next thing. Your emotions aren't important. Like everyone has problems kind of mentality. And I remember when I asked um, my dad, I was like, I wanted some like, work experience when I was like 15. The school was really pushing everyone to get work experience where they want to work. I knew I wanted to be a psychologist. So I asked my dad, do you know any psychologists I can like shadow? And he was like, why would I know any psychologists? I'm not crazy. And that was like very formative in my mind where I'm like that is what people think when you go to a psychologist so then when I had to go see a psychologist of course that's the first thing that came to my mind yeah so how do we change that how do you how do you you know talk to your clients and and when they're first inquiring that that actually it's okay I, I believe that everyone needs coaching. We've all picked up limiting beliefs, some form of scars, whether it's you've had big trauma or little trauma, we could all do with a helping hand. And I think society these days conditions us to just, you know, much like you talk about in Hong Kong, shut down your feelings, move on. And I feel like the modern woman is just trying to do her best and shutting herself down and not allowing her feelings to come up. And that was very much the case for you. Like you, you'd shut down those feelings. And 
didn't your psychologist say to you that you'd made light of your trauma and not allowed your deep wounds to to, to surface? Yeah, and um, my favourite phrase that I said over and over in my with my first psychologist was, "But I didn't have cancer." <laughs> and it's so funny because I had a brain tumour, and now actually now when it comes to cancer, they don't differentiate between um, like it's all cancer, even the benign ones. Um, which I actually only found out a couple of months ago. But I used to be like, no, it wasn't cancer, therefore it wasn't serious. And the psychologist would just stare at me and be like, you had a brain tumour. Like, how is it that different? But it was my way of being like, no, I'm not in the class of my problems are important enough. Um, And the way I address it, not necessarily with my clients, but more in like day-to-day life and especially on social media, is I'm very casual about the use of the word therapist like oh yeah I was talking about this in therapy um and I was talking about this in coaching and I don't think it's a big I act like it's not a big deal because I don't think it should have the same way it's like oh my mum said this the other day I'll just go to Mm. friends and be like oh yeah my therapist said this the other day um which we we both know Michelle who is (laughs) I call her my therapist it annoys her because she's not a therapist she's a coach but (laughs) therapy in my mind because I think we all have this I almost feel like my old self had a weird mentality around therapy that you need to be broken in order to be to warrant therapy or warrant coaching um when actually now I just see it as like I don't necessarily go every two weeks with a massive problem in my life it's just that I can get another opinion I can get someone who's a lot more objective than I can be about my own problems and that it's almost getting ahead of the curve that like I know I have certain patterns in my dating life in my um work life and that I'm getting ahead of it before it spirals into a massive problem and I think that's essentially why I had PTSD was because it was what I had PTSD when I was 20 years old so it's two decades of surgeries which I had just never spoken about and I don't ever want to let that build up again and I genuinely believe if I'd gone and addressed it at the time that it was happening it would have never um led to this excess of emotion that would have resulted in PTSD and very extreme symptoms as a result. And talking about that extreme emotion that you then experienced because she had said to you you need you need to access this. What did that feel like? Well, it's funny because I never really viewed it as accessing it. I just was in such deep denial that it didn't exist but almost categorized it as two separate things. I was like, I'm fine. I just have, and I kept saying this, I'm fine. I just keep crying and I need the crying to stop. Can you cry? <laughs> because like, I'd be fine if I just wasn't crying all day, every day. Cause I can't go to my lectures cause my eyes are so puffy. And I, I, my two main fears was I kept saying, I'm not sure if I'll ever go back to being me because I saw me and I ed- identified as the happiest one in my friendship group, the one laughing all the time. And it was really funny because the day before I was triggered into PTSD, um, one of my friends had said to me, you know, you laugh more in a day than I do in a month. And that was a sentence that stuck with me through this three month period of just crying all day, every day. And I kept saying, when will I go back to that, Michelle? I want to be going back to that, Michelle. And I just need the crying to stop so I can go back to being her. Um, And I saw this crying as like this weird physical symptom 
that was just happening that had nothing to do with my emotions um and the second problem that I kept worrying about was that I was crying so much that my eyes would throb so almost like painfully that I genuinely thought my eyes were going to fall out and I I actually googled one day like can you break your eyes from crying? Because it just was three months nonstop from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to sleep, just crying nonstop. Oh, well, so the sadness did end. Yeah. (laughs) But it's funny because it actually ended through um, what's called, what's known as havening. Um, And it was a session of havening with someone different um, because I ended therapy because it was just not working for me. And I actually found that, um, after three months, I actually eventually stopped crying. And then the day before I'd go back to therapy, it would be like this feeling of dread that I had to go back into my past again. And it mm. felt like it wasn't benefiting me. So I stopped it completely. And then once I graduated, I went to go see this person um, for havening. And I genuinely acted like the crying was just a symptom that needed to be solved. And I genuinely believe that as, as, as long as that was gone and as long as I could talk about my surgeries without just bursting into tears and um not everything in the world could suddenly like trigger me because everything was triggering me into like tears all the time um then it, i'd be fine that's what people did i believe healing in hindsight just took away the physical symptom which is the one thing i wanted but it actually then allowed me to access the emotions because i almost found the crying as a distraction because i couldn't see it as the same problem mm-hmm. Do you find find that there is a lot of shame around people allowing themselves to feel? Yeah, and I also think we don't view emotions in the healthiest way that we want to categorise happy as almost um, a goal, which it's not a goal, it's a momentary feeling that lasts for anywhere like it's not it's not something you can grasp as a consistent state that you live your life in and so we therefore see anything like sadness and fear and anger as negative emotions and I think that's what prevents people from accessing it and especially when it comes to women there's so much shame around anger specifically and not being allowed the permission to be angry because it's so unattractive and unfeminine Um, and then when it comes to crying it's women being weak and so we've kind of we've put I, specifically women because I work mainly with women but women in a corner where no matter what emotion we have we're irrational we're illogical um, and our emotions are seen as an antithesis to any intelligence we might have when actually I believe our emotions make us more intelligent um, and that our social intelligence and our emotional intelligence are essential to actually bring our skills to life yeah I completely agree I mean when I first embarked on this journey, just understanding what the sensation in my body was actually telling me and why it was there was really quite eye-opening. And I think there's so many of us walking around and not knowing what we're feeling or why we're feeling it. And that's really powerful. And one of my biggest tools for me has been inner child work. And I read about in your book and obviously know from you that that's also been a key part of your work. Yes, um, I <laughs> I did when I was first introduced to it. I was like, I kind of put it under the umbrella of meditation. I was quite anti meditation. I was like, I didn't come here for meditation. I don't want to hear about mindfulness. It's lit- it was 
in the time frame where mindfulness and meditation was on the lips of every single person's mouth and everyone was almost pitching it as the solution to everyone's mental health problems and I had just been so inundated with that word that when it was like oh in a child meditation no no we're not doing a meditation and then I tried it once and just started crying and at that point I hadn't really cried in like two three years um like mm. until um, since uh, I had that PTSD spout of like crying for three months and I was like wait hold on that actually like when I finished the inner child meditation I was like wait that actually felt good maybe I needed to do that maybe there was something there um and I think because havening gave me the illusion and I think I talk about this in the book gave me the illusion that I was fixed because I was no longer crying and that I was sorted and that I especially when it came to my training as a life coach that's almost what was sold to me was that you're good now like you can fix any problem because you have all the tools and you're trained in all the tools so you can fix yourself that I was almost in this mentality of like I can do everything by myself I don't need anyone else which is my character personality anyway um and then when I discovered in a child meditation through um Michelle my life coach um our life coach and that's when I was like okay wait there might be something to this um and I think uh, largely with inner child meditation it was learning how to be kinder to myself I think I had a very negative view of the child's version of myself and probably this isn't uncommon because um I grew up in a, a school where I wasn't particularly the most popular girl and I always wanted to be a I wanted to be anything that I was, uh, anything that, that I wasn't. Um, so I wanted to like be more popular. I wanted to be more sporty. I wanted to be. And so everything that I was was wrong. And trying mm -hmm. to rebuild that relationship and being like that 15 year old girl, that 13 year old girl, there was nothing wrong about her. Like she didn't need to change was a massive learning process. Oh, that gave me goosebumps. And that's quite right. So is is self-love a really key thing that you practice and you teach your clients? Because it certainly is. Uh, it was certainly huge to me. And just just like you, I had to learn how to dialogue with those younger parts of me um, with with self-love and self-compassion. And in some ways, most importantly, self-acceptance, because I think that's I think I sometimes believe that self-love is a really big ask to 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 fall back in love with yourself when when some of us and certainly me came from a place of self-loathe but to self-accept and go do you know what you're okay just as you are was was a really powerful thing for me. Yeah, and I sometimes think self-love is such a broad almost vague word that it's so hard to pin down and what's funny is that I would have said I loved myself and I would have said because I was already like very embedded in the body positive community and like my body confidence had been quite secure for, for a number of years um and so I was like the I would have said I loved myself but the one thing that I wasn't doing at all and now I don't think you can have self-love without self-compassion was I wasn't kind to myself at all so it's funny that I had this illusion that I loved myself but then I made a mistake and I'd be the first one to beat myself up or if I needed more rest than the average person, which isn't uncommon for all the like health problems I've had, if I had to sleep 12 hours and my housemate only needed three hours, um, I would feel really bad and negative and be like, oh, you're so lazy. That's not how someone who loves herself talks to herself, but it's almost 
maybe I'm just very good at categorizing things and compartmentalizing but I thought loving yourself was simply like not looking in the mirror and hating yourself and I didn't anymore and I didn't hate my body and I didn't hate um what I looked like but I still was very critical of myself every single day and I think learning the self-compassion side of it was a huge piece of the puzzle that came from inner child meditation absolutely and talk to me when you went through your your from from caterpillar to butterfly and you were embarking on you know I'm, I'm a body confidence coach and this is this is where I can help people your friends found that quite a hard transition of of, of understanding the new Michelle yeah and actually I went specifically on a coaching retreat to try to find new friends because none of my uni friends could understand it and I think the difficulty was also it was the almost clash between science and more holistic or spiritual practices where all, so many of my friends had come from a psychology degree and were going down the traditional route of becoming a psychologist and then I was six months out of university and working with clients and so there was a lot of backlash in terms of that where they were like you're not qualified this isn't okay you're not you shouldn't be doing this it shouldn't be certain like you shouldn't be allowed to even practice and that was kind of the message I was getting and um there was a lot of people who I guess especially because if I look back at my uni time I had a wonderful time and I talk about all the fun things I um fun things I did whilst I was in uni but I was always the person who had a problem going on so I attracted a lot of people who would swoop in and save me especially my guy friends would swoop in and save me when it came to like the boys I was dating and everything that so when I came out got qualified and especially getting trained as a life coach um every time you had to a practice a coaching exercise you also had to be the client I changed so rapidly in six months that it was so difficult for them to then realize that the girl who was crying three like for three months in a row then became this person who had their life together wanted to start a business had started a business and was the first person out of their class to have a full roster of clients that mm. was really hard to piece together and that I didn't need saving. I didn't need them to help me. I was fine. I was doing this by myself um, and that I was qualified and I was working with clients and clients were happy with how I was working with them, but they were still training and training and still had five more years to go, 10 more years to go. Mm. Uh, and I experienced the same kind of, um, you know, people not not necessarily being familiar with the new cat because, again, I wasn't reliant on those um, roles that I I was playing and and therefore they were playing too. Um, and it really does it really does require courage and belief within yourself to go. Do you know what? I really feel this is my purpose and this is right that I'm the new version because the old version wasn't serving me anymore. And it's also hard when it's like you have the numbers against you because every single one of my friends was saying I was like I was the problem, so, like something was wrong with me. And actually, I was like, well, is it possible that there's nothing wrong with either of us? Just our dynamic isn't healthy anymore. Um, and especially with the fact that as over the last few years, I've lost a lot of friends. And as I was losing some of the friends, the friends who were saying were going, well, you shouldn't really cut people out like that. And if you look at the whole population, it isn't normal to cut friends out like that. But it's also not normal to grow as much as I do or you do. Um, it's not normal to 
um, invest in personal growth as much as, especially at 25, as my friends are doing. And therefore, it's probably okay to not be normal and okay that I'm changing my friends a lot faster than the average person is. And I'm not really... um, I'm not really attached to being normal anymore. I don't care about being normal and I don't really care whether it's normal that I'm losing friends faster than the average person because the end result is that if I look at my life now compared to two years ago, I am dramatically happier. So it doesn't matter what process I had to go through in order to get to that point. And yes, it's sad. And yes, I still like have great memories with those people just because they're not in my life. I don't feel like I have any hatred or anger towards them. Um, but I can understand why other people don't understand it. And talking a moment about triggers and when, because obviously life is a journey and every time we grow as individuals and we set our goals higher and um, reach the stars, whatever we want to say, um, there are still triggers. No one's, no one, it's not an end game. It's, it's a, a life of lessons and growth. How do you handle being triggered? I don't think I'm triggered that much anymore, but I think when you haven't dealt with your your stuff, that's when I was most easily triggered, especially in the phase of PTSD when it was like I was so unwilling to face any of it, so everything was a trigger because it was like almost my unconscious mind was like, we're trying to force you to deal with it, so we're going to throw everything at you. Um, now, I think... The only thing that really triggers me is if I'm spoken to in a certain way. It brings me back to other points in my life when I've been spoken to in a negative way. But the way I deal with it now is like having healthy boundaries and with a lot of practice and it's been very slow over the last like four years of learning how to set those boundaries and how to stand up for myself and how to stand up for myself without... um, I'm a kind of person who goes from one extreme to another. So if it's like either I set no boundaries or I lash out. And it's trying to find that middle place of, I can set a boundary without being rude. I can set a boundary without raising my voice. And that is the main thing. Boundaries is the main thing that has allowed me to like live life without feeling like I'm constantly triggered because I almost don't let it get to that point. Yeah, absolutely. Boundaries has, has been a huge, a huge thing for me. And I was talking about it to somebody the other day and because I'd been with a friend who said, oh, well, I'm, I'm having trouble with my mother-in-law and I, every time I get in, the kids are still awake and it's, it's a bit of a nightmare. And I said, why don't you just say really nicely from a place of love and compassion, it would really work if you could um, get the kids ready for bed so that when I come in, you know, that they're feeling quite calm and they've done their homework. And she's like, oh, no, I couldn't do that. And it really made me remember how I used to be and, and we stop ourselves just just saying things in a nice way, but a firm and way that we are boundary them and giving them our expectations. And for me, it, it, it was a game changer learning boundaries. And it's also that thing of like, when you say to a bound, like if someone says, why do you set this boundary? And you go, well, I can't say that. Actually, what I think you're saying is I don't want to say that because I still care about what that person thinks more than I care about my own personal well-being. Because if you think about it, it's like how the, it's almost like you're so concerned with how the other person's going to react that you're not even willing to try it. And to me, that ultimately is about fear. And I think throughout my personal growth journey, it's kind of this relationship with fear is just like you've got you've got to get through it. Like it's not a reason to not do anything. 
Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And, and it kind of goes back to another part of self-love. And, and like you say, like it's a blanket term and no one really knows what it means. And and uh, we've talked about what it, like self-acceptance and self-care and things like that. And also boundaries. Boundaries is a way of, of loving yourself and putting your needs first. And ultimately, that's, that's what it's about, isn't it? But that's the thing. It's also make, when, when you love yourself, it is placing your well-being higher than anyone else having hurt feelings over the fact that you've set a boundary and having gone through that process of losing people. I mean, like, at one point I called it like a mass exodus of people from my life. Like you've got so many friends that you're like, well, I actually am okay without them. Like I'm not as dependent on people anymore because I'm the most important person in my life and that's not arrogant thing to say at all. That's honestly how I believe everyone else should live. And just because you don't put yourself at the top of your priority list doesn't mean I shouldn't put myself at the top of mine. And ultimately it makes you, I find, a kinder person with more compassion for other people. You know how you say, oh, it's not a selfish or arrogant thing. No, it's not. Actually makes you kinder ultimately with more to give because you've given back to yourself. And I think that's where people get confused. Like, I sometimes differentiate between kind and compassionate, where sometimes the most compassionate thing to do is not always kind. Um, and especially when it comes to setting boundaries, I think that's the case where... For example, the kind thing to do might be to like do something for like when when a person does everything for another person, that's a very kind thing to do. It's not actually compassionate. It's not good for the other person at all because people learn how to process their own feelings. People have to learn how to um, be in control of their own behavior. And when you do something for if you do everything for someone else, then they aren't learning those skills themselves. And in the end, it's not very compassionate, but it might seem very kind. Now, Michelle, it wouldn't be right if we didn't cover the universe. <laughs> How do you subscribe to the the thing called the universe? Oh, I was dragged kicking and screaming to learn about the universe because it was kind of this thing tacked onto my coaching qualification, especially including hypnotherapy. I was so anti-hypnotherapy. I was like, fine, if I have to do it, if it's part of the qualification, I'll do it. But like, I'm not going to believe in this stuff. And this, I said the same thing about the universe. Um, and three years on, I'm like, three, four years on, I'm like, I'm full believer. I believe in timing. I believe in universal timing. I believe that, I actually think it's actually good for you to believe that there's something greater out there. I've never really prescribed to religion because I just, I hate the rules and I hate uh, the judgments. And I feel like there's a lot of judgments in religion, but I feel like that's what spirituality gives you that without the judgments and without the unnecessary rules, but it gives you the support and the feeling of that everything's going to work out. Um, And learning to trust the universe and the the timing of everything has been a huge lesson. Um, And it definitely took a while to be convinced. It it was it was a big turning point for me as well. And it has it's given me a greater belief in something. And so when events in my life do take place, I I my always go to is, well, where's the gift and what's the lesson? And it actually makes the situation, albeit challenging, a lot easier to understand and deal with because you've got that, oh, okay, well, why is this why is this come forward? What what 
What what do I need to learn from this? And going back to the earlier conversation of like, when you look back on your life, those pivotal moments, now I can't help but put it down to the universe where I'm like, maybe it was universal timing that I had PTSD literally two months before I was going to graduate. Um, and what would have happened if I did this? And what if I, I had done that? But, or even the fact that like my book got rejected for like two years before it got published. But I think by the time it got published, I was ready for it to be published. And if it had happened the year before, I can't guarantee the same would have happened. Um, and so looking back on my life with the universe in mind has been really interesting as well. And do you know what? That, that's exactly the same for me that I, 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 there's nothing I don't re- uh, that I regret about the way that my life has unfolded. Yes, there's, there's some highs and lows, but ultimately all of those low points have got me to where I am now. So I'm actually thankful for for those parts. And and actually, I wouldn't be enjoying being a coach or a hypnotherapist if I hadn't of, first of all, been through my own stuff, because you're only as good as you, you are if you've, you've actually nurtured your own self. Um, but, but looking back, it's amazing to see how things have aligned and to get me to the point and you to the point of where you are now, which is, I would believe for you and for me is our purpose and where we genuinely feel that fulfillment. Yeah, definitely. And I think the same when it comes to people in your life, that the right people are there in the right moments. And that's not always a positive thing. Like right before um, I launched Scar Not Scared, I actually had two life coaches, both who said it was a bad idea, both who said I shouldn't be doing it. Um, and that I ended up dropping both those life coaches and then launching it the next day because I was so pissed off. <laughs> I genuinely think if I had waited until the moment I was actually going to do it, I was going to do it like a month later. Um, it might not have gone viral. It, when it comes to going viral, especially, it's so important at that timing. And I did it at the worst. There's like a lot of statistics around social media timing and you should post at seven o'clock at night. And I did it in the middle of the afternoon at three o'clock because I was, I was annoyed. I did it out of anger. <laughs> and I just think things like that, looking back, I'm like, that must have been universal timing also the fact that i was going to launch it on facebook and facebook blocked my ad for no reason whatsoever and the how it ended up going viral was instagram my whole following is now on instagram if right if that's not the universe intervening i don't know what is i mean it's amazing it is amazing and it's still it's still when when things happen it still makes you go oh my gosh and i always say with michelle like we'll go oh that's so weird not weird but it's just the universe playing (laughs) and then michelle will be like there are no coincidences and i'm like yeah yeah i know but it's coincidence (laughs) yeah yeah so you're uh, one of the titles that you have is a body positive activist so i wanted to ask you your thoughts i know what my thoughts are on the magazines that are out there what are your thoughts on the way in which they advise women to upgrade themselves with plastic surgery and losing weight to hit, you know, to keep your man and all this kind of stuff? What's your view on it? I think with that, it's almost like trying to keep women small because a lot of people have weight loss as their number one goal. If you look at New Year's resolutions, for example, everyone's number one goal tends to be, I want to be a surgeon dress size or... Um, I want to lose this amount of weight, whatever it is. It's a body goal. And therefore, it takes time and energy away from any other accomplishment you could be going through. And I definitely, 
I struggled with the weight side of it probably more than the scars because I had already accepted my scars going into the community. But I almost always had one foot in the door with like weight loss stuff and trying things and then one foot out the door being like, oh, there are so many women online just loving their body and living their life. And the thing that shifted it for me was actually reading up about the health side of it. And there were some great books out there from um, Health at Every Size by Linda Bacon um, to The Beauty Myth by Naomi Wolf. And all of these books actually show you how many companies, how many um, business people are benefiting off the insecurities that they are actually creating within women. Well, one of the examples that's quite prominent was there was this woman called Nicole who decided to um, create the Cellulite product. And Cellulite wasn't a problem. No one saw Cellulite as a, as a problem until Vogue put it on their front cover, I think in the 1970s. And then suddenly everyone started seeing natural fat cells in our thighs as a disfigurement when before it was literally just part of a normal human body which it is because it's in 95 percent of women have cellulite um but people saw it as an opportunity to start marketing on it and once i learned about that side of it it actually makes you so angry because it's like how many women are falling for this and they're in a system in a society that makes it easy to fall for it so it's not even their own fault because if you're surrounded by it and it's in our culture like it is um, in diet culture, then of course you're going to fall for it because not only is there societal proof, but it's in every single thing you read. It's in every single conversation you have. Um, and I, what I am really passionate about is getting people to live a larger life than what they look like. Um, and I think that's the sad thing, especially when it comes to my hospital experiences it's like you never want to, you don't know when you're going to die. You don't know when your life is going to end. You don't want your ultimate goal in life is to look beautiful when you're going to lose your body at the end of your life anyway. Um, and from my hospital experiences and especially the times when I thought I was going to die, the the things I was thinking about wasn't about what I was look, what I looked like, but about the opportunities I missed out on because I feared being the fat person in dance class or I didn't want to go on a hike because what if I'm the last one and it'll be really embarrassing and then I'll sweat loads and all of these silly things that you just don't think about when it comes to life or death. Yeah. And I, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, it's such a profound way to look at it. You're quite, you're absolutely right. And I love the way that um, I was reading something of yours ages ago and you, you were talking about the word fat and you were like, yeah, it's a descriptive word and an like it's 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 just a word that describes whether something is big or small or or fat or slim or whatever and tell me about that well so it's almost like if you said to someone i'm tall they wouldn't be like no not you know you're not tall people do that <laughs> and like even when i do interviews i'll be like oh cuz i'm fat and then they'll be like later on in the interview oh as you describe yourself as fat because they have to justify using that word and I'm like look if you have eyes you can see I'm a size 20 or like you won't know I'm a size 20 but you can see that I'm plus size um, and it's not a problem but almost whispering this word and call it there are some people calling it the f word rather than actually using it and oh I'm not going to use the word fat around my kids is that not what happens when you're ashamed of something does that not embed shame mm. the fact that you can't even use the word um, the fact that you like whenever someone uses the word you have to be like no, no 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 and you're essentially lying to their face 
it's just a word and it's why um i have no issue i mean there have been a lot of jokes around the fact that i call my book am i ugly and i in almost every nice message i get it's like i don't know why you would call your book this because you're not ugly i even looked at your instagram just to find, like so many people read my book don't know who i am and then go to my instagram to try to find out whether i'm ugly or not and i'm like but ugly is the same as fat ugly is just a word and it's just an opinion and how is that d- deciding anything in my life whether you think I'm ugly or not because frankly my opinion is more important than yours and also it I, I mean I said this the other day but I don't know whether it's correct or not but ugly people live fulfilled lives all the time there is nothing that actually stops you from living your life by being ugly and it's again just an opinion and it's just not something that holds the emotional weight it does or it used to for me but also it does for other people like fat and ugly, these are words that I've called myself a million times. They're words other people have called me a million times, but you can call me fat and ugly online and I literally will not think twice about it. But if you call me a bad person, I'm going to care a little bit more about that because that's more important. Yeah, you're quite right. You really are an inspiration, Michelle. And thank you so much for sharing your story, your wit, your charisma. You are doing an amazing job sharing your message, empowering women. And here, here's to us together helping more ladies along their journey. Thank you again. You really are, as I said, an inspiration. Don't forget, you can purchase my book, Born to Shine, The Modern Woman's Guide to a Happier Life on my website, catraincock.com or at all major bookstores. Now off you go and shine your light. That's it for this week's Honestly Cat podcast. I'm Cat Raincock. Join me for more honest talk from honest women next week.